This podcast is brought to you by its financial supporters on Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon. Zach, Breck, Jed, Tom, Alex, Christine, Jeff, William, Mark, Danny, Dave, Nick, Kelly, Ryan, Marta, Cam, Andy, Patty, Tim, Paul, Andrew, John, and Chris. Thank you for helping me to have these conversations and to create this content. Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public, and it's something that I want to share. The following is a conversation with Daniel Schachter. Daniel is a professor of psychology at Harvard University who specializes in memory and amnesia. During our conversation, Daniel talks about the evolutionary purpose of human memory, the biological basis of memory, the movie Memento, the correlation between memory and intelligence, how fMRI technology can help detect false memories, what can be done to improve memory, and he explains the difference between the seven sins of memory, transience, absent-mindedness, blocking, misattribution, suggestibility, bias, and persistence. Our memories play a crucial role in the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Daniel has spent a career applying reason to the subject of human memory, and his work helps us better understand who we are and what is true. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Daniel Schachter. All right, Daniel. Uh, first, wanted to say thanks for, for doing this. Um, it's really wonderful to meet you. I really appreciate the time and welcome to the show. It's good, good to have you on. Thanks. Uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Uh, so I would love to start as I like to start with all of the guests on the show at the beginning of your journey into what you have dedicated your career to, which is specific to memory itself. And I'm wondering for, for you, when you were um, getting into your education career, was that something that always you were always drawn to? What's the, what's the trajectory that got you specializing in uh, in memory itself from, from your, from your memory of your own life? Yeah. Interesting question. Uh, I was interested in psychology broadly, even starting in high school from a a health course I took. And I went to, uh, uh, university at uh, university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And I was a psychology major from the outset, but I was more focused on clinical psychology and took a lot of courses, uh, mainly clinically oriented. I did take some experimental courses as well. Then in my senior year, I started becoming involved in some more research-oriented projects, um, helping out some young researchers who were doing some interesting uh, work over at Duke University. And I got to know them through a teaching uh, assistant in my statistics class. And as that final semester of my senior year progressed, I could see I was becoming a bit more drawn toward the experimental approach to understanding the mind and the brain through this uh, work I was helping out with. And one of these folks uh, told me that there was an opening for a research assistant job uh, at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Durham, 
that was run by a psychologist by the name of Herb Krovitz, who was also a professor at Duke University nearby UNC Chapel Hill. And so I interviewed for that job and Krovitz and I kind of hit it off and he hired me as his research assistant. Mm -hmm. Most of his work until that time had been on, on visual perception with a little bit on memory. But at the time, and now we're, we're talking fall of 1974, I graduated May 1974, and I began with him in the fall. Uh, he was starting to do some work with uh, patients who had brain damage and memory problems. And I, as his research assistant, was the person doing most of the actual testing of these patients when they'd come into the lab. And I was really amazed by... Uh, the difference between, on the one hand, the fact that if you just had a conversation with these folks that seem normal like anybody else, carry on a conversation, seem perfectly intact, but then if you go out of the room and come back five minutes later, the patient would have no idea you know, who you were, what you were talking about. They couldn't remember virtually anything uh, from the recent past if they weren't holding it in their mind and in, in their short-term memory. Hmm. And that uh, I found really, uh, really astonishing. And I had the opportunity, uh, I worked for Krovitz for two years, not only to test patients, but to start reading the literature on amnesic syndromes. And that really drew me in to the topic of memory, which I really hadn't thought much about, even as a psychology major before that time. Mm -hmm. So then I began thinking about, well, how do I go forward with this? And Applying to graduate schools, I focused on those programs that had a lot of strength in, in memory because I felt like through my testing and reading the literature, uh, testing experience with patients and reading the literature, I had become somewhat knowledgeable about the literature on amnesia and amnesic syndromes, but knew very little about basic memory research. And so with some guidance from Herb Krovitz, who kind of knew his way around the field, I, I applied to and I got into uh, a graduate program at the University of Toronto, which at the time was the world center for memory research uh, yeah. in cognitive psychology, uh, had a group of five or six of the leaders in, in the field. And I was fortunate to be accepted and to be taken on by Endel Tolving, who was a kind of a legendary figure even at that time in, in memory research. So I started at Toronto on the fall of 1976. I got my PhD there in 1981. And then by that time, uh, you know, kind of uh, my career path was sort of roughly set as focused on memory uh, and amnesia. And in the early part of my career, after I got my PhD in, in 1981 in Toronto, I stayed on. We were fortunate to be able to uh, get a grant to set up what we called a unit for memory disorders that I, uh, as a young PhD, was in, in charge of running, where we were doing kind of basic science research, looking at uh, memory problems in, in patients with various kinds of brain injuries or brain damage. Um, and I stayed there for uh, a number of years. And then I moved on to a faculty position at the University of Arizona in 1987 that was uh, the psychology department there was putting together a very exciting new initiative in cognitive neuroscience. And I was part of that for several year, years. And then in 1991, I got recruited away by Harvard. And I've been here uh, ever since uh, doing work on the cognitive neuroscience of memory. Yeah. 
early in your career, and you said you graduated from college in 1974, and you just articulated your kind of trajectory to Harvard. What was the general consensus about memory at that time? You know, I, I know just in doing research for this conversation, there's been a lot of technical innovations that seems to have shed light on the more specific aspects of what we now know about memory. But back in the 70s, back in the 80s, what what do you remember about what was known about memory at that time? Well, at that time, really, the, for, for someone interested in human memory, a lot of the most exciting work was, was coming out of separately from cognitive psychology, where memory researchers were trying to characterize uh, the nature of human memory by talking about mental processes, uh, not necessarily with any reference to the under the brain underpinnings of those processes. And there was a lot of very uh, cool work. We were starting to learn more about memory uh, errors and distortions. We were starting to learn about some of the basic principles of how we encode information into memory and how we retrieve that information. Uh, people like uh, Endel Tolving, who I work with, and one, one of my other mentors at the University of Toronto, uh, Fergus Craik, were, were leaders uh, in this area. And there was kind of a separate uh, area of research uh, on the neuropsychology of memory that was focused on these patients who, uh, as I mentioned, I had been testing in my earlier uh, experience, uh, who had memory disorders as, as a consequence of, of, of brain damage. But those two areas at the time really hardly spoke to one another. They were on, really on parallel tracks. And the cognitive psychologists didn't know much about or didn't care much about what was going on in these studies of uh, patients with memory disorders. And uh, people who were studying the memory disorders, with only a few exceptions, either didn't know much about or didn't care much about what the cognitive psychologists were, were finding. Hmm. But toward the end of the 70s, those two fields uh, started to merge. So I was very fortunate as a graduate student to take part in a conference that uh, was maybe the first one to really explicitly try to pull together researchers from the cognitive side of memory research and the neuropsychological side. Hmm. Uh, it was organized by uh, a neuropsychologist uh, in Boston, Laird Cermak, who worked at a, a VA hospital in Boston and was interested in integrating the two perspectives. And it was held uh, in Vermont in the fall of 1979. Tolving was invited. I, as his graduate student, got to go along with him. And it had a lot of the leading lights from both cognitive psychology and neuropsychology in the room together, kind of for the first time, I think. And that, I think, was a, a turning point in our, in our field in that um, it got the two sides listening to one another. You know, I was coming up kind of with exposure uh, to both sides of it. And uh, the, there was a, a, a book uh, that Cermak edited called Human Memory and Amnesia that I wrote a chapter in with Tolving and others wrote a chapter on. And so then I think for the next 10 years or so, what we began to see was a much tighter integration of work from the cognitive perspective and neuropsychological perspective. So now people like me and others, not just me for sure, who were, who were studying amnesic patients were, were making more effective use of the paradigms and ideas from cognitive psychology. The cognitive psychologists were starting to look at some of these really interesting dissociations between different kinds of memory, 
that were being observed in amnesic patients. And so, you know, I think the 1980s were kind of like a golden age of integration between those two perspectives. And then things changed again in the 1990s when uh, neuroimaging technologies came on the scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to get into some of the examples of the amnesic patients that I've heard you reference in, in past interviews that I've watched prior to this conversation. To start at first principles, what is your understanding of why memory exists in the first place? You know, obviously human beings have memory and memory recall, but it's it's not unique to us in the animal kingdom. What's your explanation as to why memory exists in the first place? I think there are a variety of reasons. Obviously, what we mostly what we would think of is that we need to preserve information uh, about our, our our past experiences in order to navigate the world. We need a system that allows us to think back in time and uh, reflect on our experiences. Uh, we need to be able to learn new information and memory broadly writ, which is really a, 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 a umbrella term for a, a lot of different kinds of underlying processes and systems, it allows us to revisit our past, to learn from our past, to uh, re-experience some of what we've gone through. But uh, one of the focal points of my work, certainly over the last 15 years, has been that the idea that memory is not only about the past, and memory, maybe not even primarily about the past, but as least, at least as much about allowing us to think ahead to the future. Hmm. That we need, yeah, we need to preserve uh, information and experiences, uh, but we don't need that information simply for the purpose of uh, reminiscing and reflecting. And one of the big messages to come out of, of work from a number of labs uh, over the last 15 years is that there are striking similarities between what goes on in the brain and the mind when we remember the past and imagine the future. And so from my perspective, uh, what these similarities are, are I think, are, are telling us is that memory is really set up to help us make use of information from the past to plan for think ahead to future events. Yep. And so when we think about the purpose of memory, I think we need to think about the future as much as about the past. I think to this example might dovetail quite nicely into what you just said, which is, uh, I think, a relatively famous case in your field um, that I had never heard of before, patient KC. Mm-hmm. For people who have never heard of that before, what are the details about that individual and and what's important to what have we learned that is important from that from that example? Yeah, KC was a fascinating case. He he came to uh, our attention at the University of Memory at the Unit for Memory Disorders that I mentioned earlier, the University of Toronto in the early 1980s. At that time, he was a young man who had had a head injury in a motorcycle accident that left him with a very severe amnesic syndrome. So his IQ, for example, was still relatively normal, and he could interact and you know, use language in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a normal way, but he had an inability to remember any specific event from his past. You couldn't get him to recall any particular thing that had ever happened to him. 
And at that time, what I was really interested in was uh, what we called during the 1980s, the distinction between explicit memory and implicit memory. So explicit memory would be your ability to consciously recall past experiences and implicit memory would be kind of the non-conscious uh, uh, effects of past experience on subsequent behavior. One of the things we learned from KC, and we, we had already learned this from other patients uh, tested earlier, was that despite his inability to recall any particular thing that ever happened to him, he could show various kinds of implicit memory, non-conscious memory. And there are lots of examples of this from the literature. Some of the work we did with KC at the Unit for Memory Disorders, for example, we were able to show that he was able to learn uh, new vocabulary uh, related to uh, computers that he had never uh, knew before. He was actually able to learn how to do some simple programming on a computer. Uh, this was done over a, was a certain training techniques over a period of months. And yet each time he came into the lab, he would have no idea that he had ever done the task before. So that was one of the striking things that we learned from Casey uh, at the time. Uh, and we later learned through uh, brain imaging that he had damage to uh, a critical uh, part of the brain that's important for memory, the, the hippocampus, part of the inner or medial part of the temporal lobe, uh, as well as a couple of other uh, brain regions. But most relevant to the comment uh, I just made about the importance of memory in the future was a, uh, in, in, in our ability to think about the future, was a testing session in which Endel Tolving and I uh, were uh, present in a room with uh, KC, and I was mostly interested at the time in, in implicit memory, as I just described. Tulving was uh, had come up with the, the idea of episodic memory and had contrasted episodic memory and with semantic memory. So episodic memory is our, is our ability to remember a specific past personal experience. Remember two years ago when I went to Paris and went to a certain restaurant, uh, semantic memory, generally speaking, is our, our general knowledge of the world. I know that Paris is the capital of France, and there are various intermediate states between the two. So Casey had pretty good semantic memory, certainly for anything that he had, had learned before uh, his head injury, and as I've already mentioned, had no episodic memory. Tulving was interested in the possibility that episodic memory not only would allow you to uh, travel back in time and revisit your past, but also might play some role in, in your thinking about the, the future. So there was a testing session where we were both present and Tolving asked him a very simple question. And we weren't, neither of us were sure how Casey was going to answer this question. Tell me what you think you're going to do tomorrow. And you might think he would have no problem with that because he had a memory problem, but surely he could tell you what he's going to do tomorrow. Well, he just sat there and kind of drew a blank. And when Tolving asked him, what's going through your mind? He said, well, I, I just have a blank in my mind. And then after some nudging and, and pushing, he would eventually be able to say something like, well, I might have breakfast and then I might have lunch. But he couldn't conjure up any specific episode in his mind of what might happen tomorrow any more than he could remember any particular event that had happened yesterday or the week before. It was the same kind of blank. And so we were really struck by that 
episode by that by that uh, incident and suggested to me for the first time, you know, that there there was some role for episodic memory in particular in thinking about the future. But as memory researchers, we knew a lot about how to study memory for the past. We didn't really have good ideas about how to study uh, uh, how memory might be involved in future thinking. So it impacted both Tolving and I. Tolving wrote about this idea of episodic memory and mental time travel. And, you know, I started percolating on ways of, of, of trying to study this. We never really did much about it. Uh, in the late 1990s, when I was already at Harvard, I, I had a, a, a graduate student and later a postdoctoral fellow in, in, in my lab uh, who I spoke with about this issue. And we came up with some ideas about how we might study it. But at the time, we were doing some other work on memory distortion. So it went on the back burner, nothing much happened. And then finally, in 2005, 2006, I had a new postdoc in my lab. Her name is Donna Rose Addis. She had gotten her PhD from the University of Toronto and is doing some work using functional MRI, neuroimaging technique, uh, to look at autobiographical memory. And so I started talking to her about my interest in uh, how episodic memory or autobiographical memory relates to thinking about the future. And so we came up with this experiment, very simple experiment, putting people in the fMRI scanner, giving them a simple Q word, could be a word, you know, any, any word, and asking them either to remember a past experience related to that word or to imagine into the future uh, something that might plausibly occur to them related uh, to that word. So, for example, if I gave you the uh, Q word vacation, said think of uh, something, uh, a vacation related to vacation from the past few years, and you're in the scanner, you might be thinking about that nice vacation you took on Cape Cod last year and uh, a nice swim you, you, know, you had in the ocean on a beautiful day. Uh, if I gave you another Q word, um, yeah, for example, uh, such as um, uh, pet, and I said, well, think into the future about some episode that might occur related to pet. You might think, oh, I can imagine going to a pet shop and I pick out a cute puppy and I could imagine what it would look like. So that's what people did in the scanner. And then we had various con uh, control conditions where we'd give them the same cue words and ask them to engage in either semantic or visual spatial processing that didn't involve remembering or imagining a specific episode. And then we found these really striking results. I alluded to briefly earlier that when we looked at the uh, brain maps, we saw that uh, the areas that showed increased activity when you remembered the past, it was almost an identical map for activities um, showing uh, increased activity when people imagine the future. So that was really stimulated by these earlier observations of patient KC, other, other uh, researchers reporting that um, other amnesic patients uh, showed the same problem of imagining into the future. It wasn't unique to KC. And so I think that's one of the important legacies to come out of uh, this, the early observations of, of patient KC. Sadly, he passed away uh, a number of years ago. So he's no longer with us, but he really uh, had a, an important legacy in memory research. Yeah. I know just personally in popular culture, one of the 
films that has always stuck with me related to a lot of the topics that we're talking about is the movie Memento. Yes. And, uh, you know, my understanding is that the amnesia experienced by the lead character in that film, Guy Pierce, is, I may butcher the pronunciation of this, and anti-retrograde amnesia anti-retrograde versus retrograde amnesia anterograde amnesia anterograde anterograde yes explain for people who are unfamiliar with the distinction between those two forms of amnesia what that means and you know just as a human being thinking about a patient like casey or you know in that film watching that character go through the movie in a perpetual state of confusion yeah that that kind of an experience of life as a person must be mostly utterly disorienting and extremely difficult um, to be bearing. I'd love for you to maybe start with the differentiation between the two two types of amnesia, and then talk about the lived experience of what it is like for people with severe amnesia to just exist day to day. Yeah, all uh, all really interesting, important issues. Um, so anterograde versus retrograde amnesia. Anterograde amnesia refers to the inability to establish uh, new memories after a brain injury or insult has occurred. So one of the one of the lines uh, from the movie Memento that's very memorable. In fact, I just participated in a panel discussion uh, about a month ago on the movie, so it's fresh in my mind, and I, <laughs> I've watched it. Uh, Again, several times recently, I've always loved the movie and it only gets better, you know, 20 years later. But uh, one of the memorable lines from Guy Pierce is, I can't make new memories. Yeah. And he tries to distinguish that inability and terrograde amnesia, since he in the film had this head injury, uh, from what is often depicted in, 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 uh, in, in, in earlier movies, which is retrograde amnesia, which is where you can't remember something that happened before either a traumatic event, an accident, uh, illness, or injury. Hmm. So retrograde amnesia can take uh, various forms. Some amnesic patients, uh, if they have relatively restricted damage, for example, they may have a loss of oxygen to the brain, a condition known as anoxia often uh, occurs as a consequence of cardiac arrest. That can result in relatively selective damage to the hippocampus, and that can produce a condition in which patients have anterograde amnesia. They, they have a hard time making new memories, but they have little or no retrograde amnesia. If there's more widespread uh, brain damage uh, for various reasons, then the patients uh, can have serious problems with both. KC, for example, had both anterograde amnesia, he couldn't make new memories, and also uh, retrograde amnesia, he couldn't remember any particular episode uh, from any time in his past, as I mentioned earlier. And he had a head injury that damaged the hippocampus, but also uh, other other regions. Um, And in terms of the lived experience, that depends. That depends on how severe the uh, amnesia is. So in a severe case uh, like KC, it would be very much as was depicted in the film Memento, uh, you know, Guy Pierce in that film, he's constantly running into uh, people and not recognizing them. He realizes he probably should recognize them or he might have seen them before. Uh, he realizes that he's, re- you know, repeating his story and so forth. 
Um, and so in, in severe cases like that, uh, it is a confusing world that they live in. A lot depends in part on whether they're aware of their deficit or not. Mm. And awareness of deficit doesn't necessarily follow from a severe amnesia. You can have some patients who are severely amnesic, both anterograde and retrograde, can nonetheless over time learn enough about their condition that they know they have a memory problem. So mm. that becomes part of their experience. They know that they have a memory problem. Some actual some uh, re reviews of the movie Memento criticized it because they thought, oh, well, this guy had such a bad memory problem. How could he be so aware of it? That actually is, is not uh, was not an error of the movie. They can be aware of it. Where they tend not to be aware of it is when they have other kinds of brain damage uh, or you know extensive brain damage that impact parts of the brain that are important for uh, sort of monitoring our own functions. And then in those cases, you can have complete unawareness of the memory deficit. And in, in a way, those uh, kinds of cases are easier for the patient because they're not really aware that anything's wrong with them, but they put more of a burden on the caretakers, on the family, because if they have, if they have a severe memory deficit and they're entirely unaware of it, uh, that creates a lot of problems for those who are responsible for taking care of the patient because they're constantly thinking they you know, can do things, uh, uh, you know, able to do things, carry out tasks that in reality uh, they can't. So the lived experience really depends a lot on how severe the amnesia is. Uh, is it both anterograde and retrograde? Is there awareness of the deficit? Yeah. Many years ago, for a different podcast that I was hosting as a hobby when I was living in San Francisco, I interviewed a man named Bob Petrella who had who has hypothymesia, and he. For, I mean, people, what was called a hyperthymesia. Hyperthymesia, yes. Yeah. And his autobiographical memory, if I remember his story correctly, was impeccable, and he could remember specific details about what he was doing on a random Sunday living in Pittsburgh in the 1970s, who the Steelers played, who they beat, what the score was. And then on the other side of the spectrum in the lived human experience, there seems to be people who have deep um, forms of amnesia, like we have just talked about that, uh, where they, they don't remember anything about their past. They can't think about anything in their future. It seems to me, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, that we average people fall somewhere in that spectrum. I've certainly had conversations in my own life where I'm talking to someone and I'm pretty sure I've told them this story before, but I can't quite remember. Um, you know, I remember just being tested all the time in high school and college. My memory was quite poor. I, I could compensate for it in some ways by hacking tests. How do you think about the role of memory as it relates to you know, intelligence in general, you know, like what is the correlation between someone like Bob and a truly brilliant individual who is able to have recall that would impress anyone who learned about their ability to remember incredible facts about their life? How do you think about that correlation between intelligence and, and memory in general? 
Well, I think in very general terms, the two, all other things being equal, it can be correlated. There is some correlation because to encode new information into memory, we rely a lot on previous knowledge um, and you know, our ability to build up previous knowledge, uh, to build up knowledge over time is one manifestation of intelligence. On the other hand, the two things can be uh, dissociated. So for example, in classic cases of uh, amnesic syndromes, like we've talked about, KC and other patients, their IQ remains typically in the normal range. That's, all, that's really almost a, a definition, uh, a qualifying characteristic for an amnesic syndrome is that you have a disproportionate impact on memory. So the two things can be separated. You can have perfectly normal or even very high intelligence. There are amnesic patients in the record who have well above average IQs, but you know because of their brain damage can't establish new memories. Now, in the case that you just mentioned of what was uh, once called hyperthymnestic syndrome, now it's referred to more typically as uh, highly superior autobiographical memory or HSAM. That first came on the scene in a paper in uh, reported in a paper in 2006 by uh, uh, from the University of California, Irvine. It was uh, uh, Betsy Parker and uh, James McGaw, uh, who's a, a well-known memory researcher at, at Irvine. And they described the case of a woman at the time they referred to by the initials AJ, who very much like uh, uh, Bob that you just referred to, uh, seemed to be able to remember any every particular episode, every episode from her, her life. Um, and they devised some very interesting uh, tests. For example, they called the Easter test, where they asked her uh, about what had happened uh, every Easter, like for the last 20 or 30 years. And she was able to uh, recall specific incidents that had happened to her. Most of us, you know, would be at a loss to do that. Well, how did they know she wasn't just making this stuff up? She kept a diary uh, of all her experiences and they could check it against the diary and ask her a lot of unexpected questions uh, whose answers were in the diary, but she wouldn't necessarily know they were going to ask. And she passed all these tests with flying colors, got a lot of publicity. There was a 60 minutes uh, piece on her uh, she then wrote a book uh, and sort of uh, revealed herself uh, to be a woman by the name of Jill Price. The 60 Minutes piece brought out a lot of other folks with this condition, and I think possibly including your friend was mm -hmm. part of that uh, group. And they've been studied uh, ever since. And um, it's been one of the more interesting developments in, in memory research in the last uh, uh, 15 or 20 years. Now, what is it about these people that allows them to have this extraordinary memory? Uh, I think part of it has to do with the fact that they're all very focused on, interested in their own personal experiences to a point where they're rehearsing and remembering and recalling these experiences quite a bit. Hmm. Um, and what that allows them to do is escape from the normal kinds of forgetting that we're all prone to. Um, so we know that memories tend to become less accessible uh, over time. And, you know, one way that we can sort of almost simulate the experience of an amnesic patient is try to remember, you know, an event from five years ago that happened to you. And you'll see what the amnesic feels like when they're trying to remember an event that happened five minutes ago. Yep. You're not 
going to have very much memory. But um, what the uh, HSAM uh, individuals seem to do, a lot of them score very high on obsessive compulsive tendencies. They like to organize things and so forth, including organizing their own memories. And so what research has shown is that their memory for event, very recent events, maybe you know, just within the last couple of days, isn't much different from your memory or my memory. But you, when you get back weeks or months from the present, then they don't experience the normal fall off in memory that we do, the normal kind of forgetting curve. And the reason for that seems to be that they're doing a lot of you know, rehearsal, thinking about their memories, uh, in a way that uh, most of us don't do. Now, another important insight in memory research over the last, uh, primarily coming over the last 15, 20 years, although we knew about some of this uh, beforehand that's relevant to the HSAM folks, is uh, something we, in cognitive psychology, we call the testing effect or retrieval practice. And what this refers to is the fact that uh, for example, in an educational context, if I want to study for a test, I can re review the material and read it over again and again, or I can review the material and then start testing myself on that material, ask myself questions about it. And what research has shown is that self-testing is a much more effective way of promoting subsequent memory for the information that you want to learn. And specifically, it slows down the forgetting curve in a way that is strikingly similar to what we see in the HSAM group. So the idea um, that, I, I, that researchers have proposed, and I've written about this, uh, that seems to make sense, is that maybe the HSAM individuals are doing just a lot of uh, self-testing, and this is allowing them to flatten out or shallow out the forgetting curve. Hmm. So I talk a, a lot about this work in, in a recent update of, of my book uh, that I call The Seven Sins of Memory. Yep. That I wrote way back in 2001. I talk about seven different ways in which memory can go wrong. Uh, one of them, the most basic one of the forgetting sins is what I call transience. That's forgetting information over time. And I wrote this uh, updated version of the book that just came out a few months ago. And in one of the updates for the chapter on transience, that is forgetting over time, I talk about these two lines of research and how they relate to one another. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'd like to I'd like to read out the the seven that are in that book. And as you mentioned, the the, the name of that book is the Seven Sins of Memory. First one you just talked about transience. The second, absent-mindedness. The third, blocking. The fourth, misattribution. The fifth, suggestibility. The sixth, bias. And the seventh, persistence. I know you've done this many times because I've seen you do this in presentations and interviews. Yeah. And you, you just talked about the first one. But if you wouldn't mind, I would love for the audience to get a you know, high-level take on your description of those seven. You just talked about transience. The second one is absent-mindedness. What, what does that mean and, and how does that relate to your work and why was it important to put it in the book? Well, absent-mindedness has, uh, has the same endpoint as transience. You forget something, but I think it has a very different source. So with transience, you've encoded the information and then it becomes less accessible uh, over time. 
with absent-mindedness, uh, the way I talk about it is there's kind of a breakdown at the interface of attention and memory, such that either you never encode the information into memory to begin with, or encode it extremely weakly, so you don't really have much of a chance of re remembering it later on, or you encode the information normally, and then at the time of retrieval, you're preoccupied thinking about thing uh, thinking about things unrelated to, for example, an appointment that you need to keep. And so, even though the information is all there, mm. uh, you don't retrieve it because mm. your attention is focused elsewhere. So, a couple of concrete examples would be, you know, for people uh, every everyday uh, people's everyday experiences. Uh, we're all often frustrated with you know, minor incidents of forgetting such as where did I put my keys? Where did I put my glasses? Those typically originate because you put down your keys or your glasses uh, at a time when you're focused on something else. You really never encode that event into memory in a way that's going to allow you to remember it uh, later on. And so then, hey, I need my glasses now. Where did I put them? I don't really know where I put them because the information is not available. So that would be kind of an encoding side failure. Um, and then on the retrieval, uh, on the retrieval end, um, you, may, um, you may encode the information uh, totally normally uh, into memory. Um, and then you, the critical idea is that you need a retrieval cue to remind you to carry out the action at the moment uh, the action needs to be completed. So for example, I may have scheduled an appointment uh, to talk with uh, you know, a, a, a colleague over Zoom and it's encoded into memory, information hasn't faded, but uh, no reminder, there's no Outlook reminder for me. And I become really interested in a paper that I'm writing and suddenly I look at my watch and uh, an hour, I'm an hour late for the appointment. Is that because the information has faded away? No, it was encoded perfectly normally. It's just that I need a reminder at the time the action needs to be carried out, in this case, logging in for my Zoom appointment. And if I become preoccupied with other concerns, then um, I'm gonna be liable to absent-minded forgetting. So it's really a diff totally different mechanism the transients. That's why I distinguish between the two. And, you know, one of the really tragic manifestations of this latter aspect of absent-mindedness, the idea that you could forget almost to do almost anything if a retrieval cue is not available at the moment you need to carry out the action, is something that I write about in, my, in one of my updates for the absent-mindedness chapter. And it refers to, it was, uh, I first became aware of this phenomenon a couple of months after the original first edition of The Seven Sins of Memory was published, which was uh, May 2001. A couple of months later, I got a call from uh, an attorney in Iowa who had heard me being interviewed uh, about that book. And he said, boy, I have, I have a, a case that I, I'd be interested in your uh, opinion on. It was of a woman um, a high-functioning uh, young adult woman uh, who uh, had set out on a, on, uh, to work one day uh, with uh, two uh, kids in her car, 
Normally, she would drop off just one of them um, and then go on to uh, go on to uh, her, her work. And on this particular day, she had a, a, a her husband who normally took the younger child to to uh, uh, to daycare um, couldn't do it. And so she had a second child uh, in the car. They're both in the back seat. She drops off the first one. She's got a very busy day upcoming at work, thinking about other things. Her normal routine now is to go from dropping him off to work. And that's what she does. And sadly, then the story ends with her finding out later that day through a series of mishaps that the child had been in the car and uh, died of heat exposure. I'd never heard of anything like this before, but it was like an extreme extension, uh, extension of this principle that with absent-mindedness, you can forget almost anything if you don't have a cue available at the time you need to carry out an action. Sadly, since that time, these cases have become familiar. They happen every year. There are probably 25 to 30 of these cases uh, every year of uh, parents who are high-functioning, well-intentioned parents. They're not people who, for example, are thinking, well, I can leave my child in a hot car for a few minutes and then I'll go do some shopping and come back. And then they end up getting burned because it was a terrible decision. They have no idea that their child is in the back seat. And one reason why these incidents started popping up around the time they did is that for good safety reasons, shortly before that, it was mandated that you couldn't put a car seat anymore in the front seat. You had to put it in the back seat. An unintended consequence of this is that the normal reminder of seeing your child uh, in the uh, car seat in the front seat was no longer present. Now, of course, you would think, well, who could ever forget, uh, you know, uh, that your baby was in the car? Well, it is possible. Uh, and we've learned this uh, through a bitter experience over the last uh, 20 years. Um Happily, uh, there is a, there is an easy fix for this, which is just to make sure that there's some kind of reminder or cue mm -hmm. that doesn't allow you to depart the car without checking uh, the back seat and realizing that your that your child is in there. And there there are apps on your phone that you know you can download now. Uh, you're, there'd be simple things like you know attaching a, a reminder to your front mirror uh, when the child's back there. Um, but the big problem is that most people are not, don't even think of it as a possibility that yeah. they could ever be prone to this absent-minded forgetting. And yet we know that a lot of the folks who are, they're very high-functioning, loving, well-intentioned parents who just slipped up in one moment of becoming preoccupied at, at the wrong time and then forgetting something they didn't think would even be possible to forget. What has happened in those cases? The the outcome, you know, the the per, I think you said he was in Iowa. What 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 happened to that woman? In, in her case, she was brought to trial, uh, but the judge uh, the the judge found her not guilty uh, because uh, he saw her as kind of a victim of memory of a memory failure. Um, but it's very variable. This has been yeah. written about quite a, quite a bit, and I cited a number of the, the recent sources on this. Uh, uh, articles in Washington Post, New York Times, the the uh, the outcomes are very variable. There's no one outcome. Some people uh, have uh, have received uh, have been convicted and I believe uh, sent to jail. Other people um, other people are are uh, not brought to trial. Others are brought to trial 
and given uh, and, and found to be innocent for the reasons that we discussed. So it's kind of all over the map in terms of uh, what the ultimate uh, outcome is. Yeah. The third sin of memory is blocking. And I'd love to give you an opportunity to articulate what exactly that means. Blocking now um, is yet another, uh, the third sin where the outcome is the same as with transience and absent-mindedness, forgetting. But uh, again, the mechanism is different. So now memory hasn't faded away over time. Uh, You're paying attention and trying to remember. You may even have a really good cue in front of you to try to remember, but you can't produce the information that you want. So for most of us, the uh, the paradigmatic example of this would be the tip of the tongue experience, where we're trying to remember, for example, a person's name. We may remember the first couple of letters. We re- may remember what they look like. We may remember all kinds of things about them, but we can't generate the name itself. The name is blocked. And then later on, it comes to mind. We say, oh, now I remember the person's name. Um, showing that the information was there all along. So there are a few different manifestations of blocking, but the basic idea is the information is there. It's accessible. We can show it's accessible because you can retrieve the information at a later time. But for reasons that are still not really uh, very well understood, the information becomes inaccessible to the particular retrieval queue uh, that's uh, available at the moment. And this, you know, this, it can be really uh, embarrassing, uh, you know, uh, blocking when it occurs. Um, And, you know, because uh, you're you're kind of on the spot, blocking occurs when uh, you may be nervous, uh, you may have, you know, a a case of uh, stage fright, and be unable to retrieve information that you know, it's uh, know is there, it can be socially embarrassing, for example, uh, you know, for parents, they may go to like a school meeting. Uh, they see other parents there who they they know, they're familiar with. They feel like they should be able to remember their names. They know their names, and then boom, they block at the moment uh, uh, at the moment that uh, the worst possible moment, and it becomes kind of a social embarrassment. Yeah. How about misattribution? Uh, misattribution now is the first of the distortion related memory sense. So this is when some kind of memory is present, but it's wrong mm-hmm. in the case of misattribution. Um, and this occurs because our memories are kind of uh, uh, multi-feature constellations of information. And we can remember some of that information sometimes correctly uh, while 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 not having access to other kinds of information. So for example, we're, we we may remember some something about a person that we encountered uh, or a new fact that we learned, but we may not remember the context in which it occurred. Did I hear this on the radio? Did I read it in the newspaper? I may retain the fact, but misattribute my knowledge to the newspaper when in fact I heard it on the radio or when in fact... Uh, a friend told me this information because all these different aspects of an episode have to be pulled together in a way that we remember them later on. Now, there's some very well-known uh, cases of 
misattribution uh, legal cases. So one that I talked about in the original Seven Sins of Memory uh, that some uh, some of your listeners uh, who are old enough will remember stems from the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995. Some may remember that there was a nationwide manhunt for two individuals, John Doe number one and John Doe number two. John Doe number one, of course, is Timothy McVeigh. He was eventually found and convicted convicted and executed for his role in in the bombing. John Doe number two is never found. And it was later determined that John Doe number two was the product of a misattribution error Hmm. um, made by the witness who, uh, uh, who played a key role in identifying McVeigh. So this was a, a guy, his name was Tom Kessinger. He was present at the body shop where McVeigh rented the van that he used to carry out the bombing. And he distinctly remembered McVeigh and gave a very accurate description of him. And he remembered there was this other guy with him. And again, he gave a very detailed description of this guy. He's wearing a Carolina Panthers cap. He had a Playboy bunny uh, tattooed on his arm. So there's a lot of detail there. Well, it was later determined that this individual was somebody who Kessinger saw at the body shop, but the next day, Mm. who had nothing to do with McVeigh. Mm. He was an innocent man by the name of uh, uh, Todd Bunting, a a private in the army. He had nothing to do with renting the van. But um, what Kessinger had done and mixed up these two episodes in his mind and then misattributed his knowledge of Bunting to the episode with Timothy McVeigh. So that's an example of misattribution. And this is something that has now been studied quite a bit over the last uh, uh, 20 years and more in a psychological laboratory. We and others have done neuroimaging studies using functional MRI, where we've asked the question, can you tell the difference in the brain between an an accurate memory and then, uh, you know, a, a a misattribution error where someone believes that they're remembering accurately. Um, and there are some differences that, that we can detect between these kinds of uh, true and false memories, uh, so to speak. And we've, we've learned a lot about that over the last 20 years. Yeah. What's suggestibility? What's that one? Suggestibility is pretty close to misattribution in that it involves a memory, some memory that is present but is wrong. But in the case of suggestibility, there's an explicit suggestion that is given to someone that they incorporate into their memory, an explicit kind of misinformation, if you will, where it's suggested to someone that something might have happened and they think about that event. And even though uh, the event didn't happen, they come to remember the event uh, as as something that was real. Hmm. Um, suggestibility is something that was first studied in cognitive psychology literature way back in the 1970s and some pioneering studies by the psychologist Elizabeth Loftus. She was able to show that people would incorporate misinformation suggested to them in an experiment into their memory for some original event. Um, Later on, it became really in the in the 90s the focus of some controversy because some, again, some listeners will remember that at that time there was a, a very highly charged debate about 
recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse that emerged in, in psychotherapy for the first time, yeah. where people were claiming to remember um, being sexually abused as, as children, and they you know, had, didn't have access to these memories for years after they occurred. And I think what we now understand to have happened in a lot of those cases, not every case, but in a lot of those cases, particularly where the memories were recovered in psychotherapy, was in fact that they were most likely the product of suggestion, yeah. where a, a therapist uh, suggested to the patient that this might have occurred based on you know, some of their presenting symptoms. And then they went on to develop uh, strongly held memories that in, in, many in many of these cases were later uh, disavowed by people who, who sort of retracted uh, their accusations. Um, and that spurred a lot of a, sort of a new generation of research on suggestibility, um, where uh, Loftus and, and many other researchers were able to show that if you suggested an event to an individual, that something might have occurred to them uh, when they, uh, for example, were young. Uh, the first study of this from Loftus was suggesting to uh, a young adult that he had been lost in a shopping mall when he was five years old. And he initially said, no, I, I don't remember ever being lost in a mall. But then he would say, well, think about that suggestion and come back and we'll talk about it again. And you keep thinking about it. Uh, this person and then others in subsequent studies eventually developed a pretty strongly held memory that, yeah, now I remember a lot of details about that time that I became lost in the, in the shopping mall. Uh, and over the years, this is these kinds of experiments on suggestion and uh, the development of false memories have shown that in most cases, you'll get about 25, 30% of people like in a young adult sample who will uh, bite on the suggestion, so to speak, who will develop a false memory, typically about events that um, occurred when they were young. Now, a really striking development that occurred only recently, a few years ago, was a study published by their cognitive psychologists Shaw and Porter, where they claimed that through suggestion, a very powerful suggestive technique involving both imagination, imagining that something had happened and some social pressure, that they were able to convince 70% of the young adult sample uh, into quote unquote, remembering that they had committed a crime resulting in police contact when they were adolescents, not when they were, you know, five years old. Uh, that was a really striking finding because uh, most of the research on false, suggested false memories, uh, you know, indicated that maybe you're going to get 25, 30%. And, you know, it kind of, it, you can kind of uh, make sense of the fact that, well, someone might develop a false memory for something that happened when they were five, because you don't really expect to remember much about that. So if the memory starts off very hazy and then you build it up over successive retrieval attempts, yeah, you can kind of relate to that. But if you ask most 20 year olds, could you know, you think it's plausible that I convince you through suggestion that you committed a crime uh, five or six years ago that didn't mm -hmm. really happen? Uh, you know, I've, I've asked students in my classes and they say, well, you know, of course not. But the research suggests that that's the case. Now, there's been a little bit of controversy about that finding because there's a question of whether the individuals in this, these studies really meet criteria for false memories, having a real reliving of this event, 
or whether it's something that comes up a bit short of a full-blown false memory that researchers call a false belief. So a false belief was, oh yeah, you convinced me that I committed a crime a few years ago, but I and I'll speculate about the details, but I don't have a full-blown memory. And that may be more, you know, uh, a more accurate depiction of what was going on in that study. And this is something I talk about in my update on the in the suggestibility chapter in the new Seven Sins book. Yeah. What about bias? What's that? Bias is a more subtle kind of memory disorder, and it refers to the influence of our current knowledge, uh, memory distortion rather than memory disorder, uh, refers to the influence of our current knowledge, beliefs, and feelings on our memory for the past. And there's a lot of research that shows that what we currently know and believe and feel can really skew our memory um, uh, of what happened in the past. So, you know, there's some classic work on uh, memory for past political attitudes that shows that if you record how people feel about an event, like what's your, you know, feeling now about legalization of marijuana and other issues like that, and then you come back years later and you get their, you know, their current assessment of their beliefs about that issue years later, and then you ask them, hey, what did, what did you what did you say about this 10 years ago, that their memory of what they said 10 years ago is more closely related to what they currently feel than what they actually said at the time. And there are a lot of, uh, a lot of examples uh, of that. Um, some of the more contemporary work on, on, on bias is kind of suggesting some interesting links between uh, the impact of bias um, our current knowledge and beliefs, and for example, suggestibility. So there's uh, there was a, a, an interesting study published a few years ago, um, looking at um, memories for um, uh, incidents that were allegedly, or you know, episodes that that allegedly involved. Uh, George Bush and Barack Obama. In one of them, Bush looks really bad. In the other one, Obama looks really bad. Neither episode actually occurred, but the finding was that you know Republican leading uh, participants were more likely to have a false memory of the event where Obama looked bad, and vice versa for the Democratic leading uh, participants. They were more likely to have false memories of this event that didn't occur where that made Bush look bad. And there's been some more recent research on that. So I think bias is quite ubiquitous. It interacts with some of the other sins uh, and uh, it plays a a very important uh, subtle role in shaping our memories. Another recent development that's important with bias, we've probably all heard about this, is the notion of implicit bias. which is uh, something that actually you know, grew out of research on implicit memory, which we talked about a little earlier. And uh, this has to do with more subtle uh, biases that uh, may occur, for example, um, when we're uh, thinking about different uh, racial groups or gender stereotypes, where we build up stereotypes in our mind that bias our judgments. Uh, in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, apply to any particular uh, individual. And so there's been a lot of research on uh, implicit bias because it's operating on kind of a non-conscious level. 
And people have been asking, is there anything we can do to, you know, through training to impact implicit bias, to reduce its uh, influence? And there is a little research that says, yeah, you probably can train people uh, out of their implicit biases, but at least so far, the, the recent work that's been done suggests that this training has only a very transitory effect. Hmm. The last one of the seven is, is persistence. I would love to give you a chance to talk about what that means. Persistence now uh, refers to in cases in which memory, again, is present. So it's one of the sins of commission, like the misattribution, and suggestibility and bias that we just talked about. Memory is present, but it's unwanted. So here we're talking about uh, typically the influence of very arousing or even traumatic experiences uh, that may intrude on our minds that we can't control. Uh, we've all had disturbing experiences that have kept us up at night where we keep running through the uh, event uh, again and again. Uh, and in the case of trauma, we know that traumatic experiences typically are all too well remembered and uncontrollably uh, and uh, intrusively. Um, and this is something, you know, we've also learned a lot about uh, in the last two decades. We know a lot more about the underlying neurobiology, for example, that produces these persisting uh, intrusive memories. Uh, we know that we've known for some time that there's a, a part of the brain um, called the amygdala that plays an important role in, in emotion and emotional memories. And we know that the amygdala and some uh, connected structures uh, seem to be critically involved in these persisting uh, intrusive memories. So I would say of all the, the seven sins, the persistence uh, might be the most psychologically debilitating uh, of the seven. And uh, in my update uh, on persistence, I talk about some recent work where people have been uh, using various methods to try to reduce the impact of persisting memories, which again, can be quite damaging. Mm -hmm. I uh, Last year, I got a chance to talk to Jerry Rosenbaum, who was the uh, director of psychiatry at Harvard for 20 years, and he is opening up their psychedelic research arm. And he, one of the things I remember him telling me was that in all psychological mental illnesses, rumination was a key component to all yes. of them. And it seemed like some, he had some uh, hope that there, some of these substances might help with, help people mitigate the persistence aspect. I don't know if, if you agree with that or if you've thought about that as well. Yeah, no, I think he's absolutely right. I mean, uh, tendencies toward rumination measured in various ways usually are associated with uh, bad outcomes related to persistence. And, you know, there have been some attempts um, to uh, mitigate uh, persistence the, uh, through uh, uh, drugs that, for example, uh, impact the activity of the, uh, the amygdala coupled with some psychological manipulations. And those have shown some, uh, some promise mm -hmm. uh, in mitigating the effects of uh, persistence. So I think, uh, I think we're kind of on the right trail there in terms of uh, ways of, of dealing with, the, with this very uh, debilitating uh, feature of memory. So one of, one of the interesting, thing, uh, interesting features of persistence is that it, it also highlights a, a very important uh, uh, feature of the seven sins. There's something that, that, that I 
emphasize in my thinking and writing about it is that as debilitating as something like persistence can be, and as damaging as some of the memory sins can be, I tend to think of them not so much as flaws in the design of memory, but rather a byproduct as byproducts of adaptive aspects of memory that make it work as well as it does most of the time. So with persistence, for example, we want a memory system that is set up to allow us to remember uh, highly salient, threatening events, events that might even threaten our very survival. We want a memory system that's really going to preserve those those kinds of events in a very powerful way so that we can avoid uh, danger in the future. And our memory system is set up to do that. But I see persistence as kind of a byproduct uh, of uh, the the very processes that may allow us to encode a a traumatic memory in a way that leaves this uh, really um, powerful mark, that's going to keep us out of trouble in the future, but it might also have the downside of of, uh, keeping us awake at night. Um, I talked earlier, and this is an insight from recent research, we talked earlier about uh, the role of memory in thinking about uh, the future. And I, in my own thinking about that, relate that to some of the phenomena, for example, of misattribution. How are those two things connected? Well, if we think about memory, not so much just as something that we use to reflect on the past, but rather as a device for preserving information that we can then use to project into the future, to simulate how upcoming events might play out, to help us deal effectively with novel situations that we've never encountered before, because after all, the future is rarely identical to the past, then we want a system that's going to allow us to engage in what uh, I call uh, flexible recombination, where we take bits and pieces of past experiences that are relevant to a new situation, recombine them, and run a simulation on how that event might play out. So for example, If I've got to have a very difficult conversation uh, tomorrow with a colleague of mine, and I'm trying to think about, well, how would I approach this? What's the best way to have this conversation? Or with a friend of mine, I might remember a past experience with that person. I might remember a past experience with somebody else where I had to deal with a similar situation. I could fuse those two things together, uh, meld them together, and then run a simulation on how this new experience might play out. Mm-hmm. So I tend to think of that as a very adaptive of feature of memory, but that flexibility and our ability to take bits and pieces of the past and recombine them to run simulations, I think may also contribute to some of the kinds of memory errors that we experience. For example, with misattribution, where we mix up elements of different episodes. And in fact, um, uh, one of my recent graduate students, Alexis Carpenter, and I published, uh, published some studies recently where we, we were able to show that um, certain kinds of misattribution memory errors uh, are the result of adaptive cognitive processes that, in, in the case of these experiments, help us to link together uh, different episodes in a way uh, that we can make uh, useful inferences about the relationship between uh, those uh, those two episodes. 
Hmm. So to give make that concrete, imagine that imagine that you're taking a walk um, in your neighborhood uh, one morning, and you uh, see a man walking a, a poodle uh, at the top of a hill top of a hill near your house. The next day, uh, you're taking a walk and you're at the bottom of the hill and you see a woman of similar age walking with that same poodle. You can now, if you put those two episodes together, you can infer that those two people are probably related. The man you saw at the top of the hill, the woman that you saw at the bottom of the hill, uh, they're linked by the poodle. Hmm. What the experiments I just alluded to show is that when you make that correct inference that two people are related via some common object, you are more prone to mixing up elements of the two episodes. So in my example, it would be when you make that inference correctly, you're more prone to misremembering that you saw the man at the bottom of the hill when you really saw him at the top of the hill. Hmm. And so we've, we've produced some experiments um, uh, making that point and showing some of the things that go on in the brain. And I, I again, I think that hammers home the idea that some of our, our memory errors aren't just necessarily flaws in our memory system, but they're costs we pay for adaptive features of, of memory and cognition. Yeah. I, I was thinking during this entire conversation that, you, you know, and you have talked about this, that memory is very closely linked to judgments about the future and decision-making. And in life, you know, for people who are looking to have as flourishing a life as they can, making good decisions is absolutely crucial to mm -hmm. being able to do that. And memory is a key aspect and you know, projecting into the future based on your past experience and your learned wisdom uh, are all related to be, being able to make good decisions. There's a quote I love, which is that the best explanation for the good old days is a bad memory. And I'm wondering for you, you know, people must ask you constantly what they can do to improve their memory. And I think in part, what they're probably asking you is, what can I do to improve my life? What can I do to improve my decision-making about my life? What kind of tips do you give people to stay as accurate as they can, as sane as they can, to not fall for the biases in their own software of their of their minds what kind of tips and hacks do you do you tend to recommend for people to be able to to have a better accurate depiction of their past and in so doing hopefully make better decisions about their future yeah a really good and important question uh, i tend to approach it again from the lens of the seven sins yeah and so you know the the first point i try to make is that you have to know which of these memory problems that you're dealing with and be clear on what they are and why they occur. And there are different potential fixes for uh, each one. So for example, transients, forgetting of information over time, we already talked about one of the most potent ways to try to overcome that, which is self-testing or retrieval practice. Yeah. So, you know, it, whether it's in an educational context or whether an event you know, has happened to you that you really want to be able to hang on to for a long time, mm -hmm. uh, repeated retrieval of that information uh, is, uh, is, very, uh, is very useful. 
Absent-mindedness is a totally different situation. Um, how do we overcome absent-mindedness? Well, we can. I, I don't think we can totally overcome it, but uh, being prone to it uh, myself, I know that one thing that has helped for me, for example, is uh, you know with uh, uh, you know common everyday problems like uh, keys and glasses. Where did I put them? Is just having a particular place where I try to only put my keys and glasses down, at least in my house, in one spot. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the problem becomes that you're unaware of when you're putting it down in the wrong spot. But if you train yourself, at least if I tried to train myself, I've, I've you know certainly reduced the incidence of absent-mindedness. So it's being a it's a question of being aware of when these uh, events can occur. Uh, in the case of blocking. Um, blocking tends to occur mostly for names. So I think you, one has to be aware of that. And for names of people, maybe you haven't seen recently or frequently. So I talked earlier about, for example, going, you know, parents who are at a, uh, either at a social gathering or in a school, uh, where they're meeting, uh, at a school meeting where they're meeting uh, parents of, uh, other kids. They feel like they should know their name, but, uh, may block on it. You could take a proactive approach, you know, try to try to take a proactive approach to situations where there may be uh, someone you you know a little bit. You think feel like you should know their name and just actually review the information beforehand, because once you get to the point where blockings occurred, it's probably too late to avoid uh, to to avoid that uh, error. Um and then, you know, in terms of things like bias, biases are the kinds of things that can distort our past in a way that results in us making bad or misinformed decisions. Those are hard to overcome. And I think really, you know, maybe the best thing we can do there is just becoming aware of our susceptibility to bias and questioning, um, you know, whether we're necessarily uh, recollecting the past accurately. So for example, one of the main forms of memory bias that we know about, I talk about this a lot in the seven sins, and it's been studied a lot recently, is what we call uh, self-enhancing bias. So we all tend to remember the past in ways that make us look better than we actually were. And that really can get in the way of making good decisions and putting yourself in in situations that you're actually able to handle because you misremember yourself as being better at certain things than you actually are. So just being aware of that as a possibility, taking that kind of thing into account when you're making a decision, I I think is something that can be useful. But more generally, it's really being aware of which of the the memory sins that you're you're dealing with is is the first thing. Um, You know, we talked earlier about the horrific situation of parents forgetting their kids in cars. Uh, and that can be overcome completely just by being aware that that is a possibility and setting reminders in place that don't allow the event to happen. So a lot of this is just knowing about the possibilities for memory failure and then allowing yourself to make a plan based on that. Yeah. I know personally, a couple of things I have tried to do over the years to improve my own recall and my own memory is when I'm reading if there is something so profound that I come across that really hits, I will highlight it and then put it up on my website for reference to be able to come back to. And I try to keep a pretty high bar for, you know, quotes and sections that, that, that lead to that. And another is just journaling. 
um, in real time to have a more accurate uh, representation of what I was really feeling like in a certain in a certain state with a certain person or in a certain context to be able to reality check myself in the future when thinking about the past. Yeah, I think that's that's great advice. And and, you know, the whole issue of uh, using technology in a productive way. We haven't we haven't said too much about technology and memory. There's a lot of concern about are we losing our memory because of, you know, reliance on Google and so forth. I talk about that in one of the updates uh, in the seven sins of memory. And I think some of those concerns are a bit overblown uh, based on uh, based on our current evidence. But I think we can productively use technology uh, in ways that help us to preserve uh, to preserve our, our, our past in a beneficial way. Yeah. Dan, I want to say uh, thank you for for doing this so much. I know we're getting towards the end of the conversation, and I, I'd love to close by asking you what you think the next few years might hold in your area of research in terms of hopeful areas of of knowledge that we might gain in 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 a short period of time, or just mysteries about memory that you think. Um, you know, in our lifetimes, hopefully, we will make some some gains in uh, shedding light on the truth of things. Well, I think at the, at the broadest level, what we're starting to see, we've seen this for a number of years and starting to see it even more, is more integration between different levels of analysis and memory research. Um, we've been able to do this uh, partly by using neuroimaging to look at brain systems and how that relates to cognition. And um, I think, you know, in the coming years, we're going to be able to drill down even more and get to uh, uh, through uh, intracellular recordings, for example, in patients, uh, uh, which are now uh, starting to uh, be more frequently done. We're going to be getting a more refined understanding of how specific, much smaller parts of the brain link with uh, cognitive aspects of memory. And I think that's, that's pretty uh, exciting work that will we'll go forward. Um, I think one of the things in, in my lab that we've been uh, focusing on, and I think, well, and, and the field more generally, is, again, this broad sense of, uh, of how memory informs not just our ability to remember the past, but all these other aspects of cognitive function. So we, we talked a lot about the role of memory in imagining the future. We've been doing some work in my lab, and others have as well, on how memory uh, can, uh, is related to creativity. Uh, and problem solving um, in uh, ways in which we can uh, make use of memory uh, in those domains. So I think we're going to see a lot more of, of that kind of work. And more generally, I think understanding uh, even more deeply how some of these seeming uh, foibles of memory or, or uh, uh, drawbacks of memory actually reflect strengths uh, of the memory system. Fascinating stuff. Daniel, thank you so much for doing this. It was a, a pleasure and I could keep doing this with you for another hour or two, but uh, really appreciate the time and thank you for all your contributions over the years. Well, thank you and uh, enjoy the conversation. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 